Welcome to the Chamber of Musical Curiosities, a podcast exploring the world in and around Music Aviva Australia. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Paul Kilday, Artistic Director of Music Aviva, and I'm here today speaking with John Bell, actor, producer, director and author. John, very nice to see you. Hi, Paul. Nice to be here. You probably get sick of people doing this, but I'm going to uh, tell the moment I first encountered your work. And so I'm going to say 1984, and it's in a production of The Servant of Two Masters, which Nick Enright adapted and you directed and Drew Forsyth acted in. And I can still remember the poster, the program book cover, the fast pace and the brilliant humour of it all. And that's after quite some decades. I wonder if you can remember that production with the same clarity and fondness that I do. Yes, I, I can. I remember it very clearly. Um, it was a wonderful vehicle for Drew. It was written as a vehicle for Drew. Drew had done a lot of work with the Nimrod Theatre up to that point. And we, uh, it was coming up to the opening of the new Sydney Theatre Company. And every company around town was invited to contribute a production in that gap year before the Sydney Theatre Company got off the ground, put on a show in the Opera House. And so Nick Enright and Terry Clark and I had a think about it and thought, let's do a, a vehicle for Drew Forsyth. And Nick came up with the idea of The Servant of Two Masters and wouldn't it be a great musical? So then Terry said, yes, I'll write the music. And uh, so it was one of those old-fashioned Nimrod-type shows that were kind of flung together according to the available talent and drawing out that talent to its, its best potential. So it, it was the, the music was a marvellous pastiche of uh, pantomime and lyric opera and comic opera and musical, according to the character and the situation. But somehow it all magically seemed to work. Stephen Curtis's wonderful designs helped a lot, but basically it was a, a chance for Drew to play not just one, but two marvellous characters playing himself and his twin, doing lightning quick changes from one to the other. It was a, a sheer delight. It was a hoot from an audience point of view. And I just wonder, I didn't know Drew Forsyth. I'd come from Canberra to see that and um, hadn't known Drew Forsyth as an actor. But uh, was this a departure for him or was it just a consolidation of the type of roles he'd been doing? It was very much his territory. The very first show that Nimrod put on in the uh, the old Stables Theatre, which was, of course, then the Nimrod Theatre, the first show we did was called Biggles, written by Michael Boddy with uh, John Hargraves as Biggles and Drew Forsyth playing Ginger. The cast of four or five, Anna Volska and Shane Harders were in it, and uh, Peter Rowley and Michael Boddy himself. And that was, uh, again, a sort of pastiche musical send-up of um, the Biggles mythology. And so that was Drew's first job out of NIDA. And then he stayed working with Nimrod off and on over the next 10 years or more. And we kept finding material that suited his particular talent, which is vast. And, of course, it's been a manifest for the last 20 years now in the Wharf Review, where he's found a real uh, nest for himself, along with uh, John Biggins and Phil Scott. Yes, and, and a stunning kind of political eye as well that uh, is nested in that that whole setup. Um, so this is 1984 uh, with The Servant of Two Masters. Mm. When did you found um, or co-found Nimrod? That was in nineteen end of nineteen seventy. I was teaching at NIDA. I'd just come back from England after five years with the Royal Shakespeare. I was offered the job of head of directing, head of acting at NIDA. So I did that for a year. Then found I wasn't really ready for 
uh, an, an institution or teaching. I didn't know enough to be teaching at that stage of my life. So uh, when my friend Ken Haller said he'd found this old stables in King's Cross, would I throw in my job at NIDA and join him in starting a theatre company in this old stables? Recklessly, I said, yes, let's do it. We had no money, no um, no backing of any sort. We just passed the hat around and uh, got the thing off the ground. And the idea was to do very much local content, rough kind of theatre, uh, which was rather inspired, I suppose, by my first ever production, which was The Legend of King O'Malley, which I did at NIDA, the, the Jane Street Theatre. And that, again, was an amalgam of music hall and pastiche and pantomime with Michael Body at the helm as a writer. Uh, so I guess that particular kind of theatre appealed to me a lot, probably because it's the first theatre I ever saw. When I was a three- and four-year-old, I saw Bobby Lebrun playing the pantomime dame in the Sawley's travelling tent shows up in uh, Maitland, Newcastle. So that was my first impression of theatre and uh, what gave me my basic love of theatre. And I guess that has shown through in a lot of my work and probably still would today, if you look closely enough, you'll find all those elements of, uh, of popular street and uh, you know, traditional theatre thrown together. So that was the first show at uh, the Nimrod. And then uh, after four years in the stables, we needed a bigger space. So we took over an old factory in Surrey Hills in Belvoir Street and turned that into the, the second Nimrod Theatre where I stayed for the next five years. So when you founded it, you're still 12, 13, 14 years ahead of the Sydney Theatre Company. What's around in terms of Sydney and professional theatre companies um, at that stage? I mean, is the Elizabethan Trust performing um, theatre? What's there? Uh, not a great deal. When I was at university a few years before, 68 to 70, no, 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 I'm going back uh, 58 to 62, there wasn't much theatre at all. Uh, we had the ensemble under Hayes Gordon, which was basically a teaching theatre and semi-pro. Uh, the independent theatre run by Doris Fitton, which was all entirely amateur. And the Elizabethan Theatre Trust had several attempts to set up companies and they hadn't lasted very long. Perhaps the most successful one was the Trust Players. Uh, had a, a short life, maybe four or five seasons but really good established actors and, uh, you know, polished productions. But I guess the support, the groundswell just wasn't there to maintain uh, a theatre of any magnitude for over a long period of time. And then we had the J.C. Williamson's musicals, which was, I guess, the main fair, always with uh, imported leading actors who'd been the understudies on the West End or Broadway. And then we had the Phillips Street Review with people like Gordon Shater and Barbara Wyndon, which was... Uh, a golden era, small theatre, but did some wonderful, wonderful work. But that was about all. And so if you wanted to see Shakespeare or Brecht or Beckett or Henri or Ionesco or that, anything like that, you had to go to university. The players and suds were working very hard churning out theatre, sometimes good, sometimes very studenty. But that's where my generation learnt our, our craft, was working in those university productions. And uh, it was quite an interesting array of talent around at that time. Talk a little bit about it, because we, we know, of course, of the great intellectuals from that time, the Clive Jameses, et cetera, who leave Sydney University for various reasons. But the actors and the directors and the script and screenwriters that would come into their own um, in the decades to follow. Well, there were a lot of people. I hope, hope I can remember most of the people who were there. But as you say, Clive James 
was writing the reviews that we were all acting in. He and uh, Leo Schofield was directing a lot of the, the, the musicals. Uh, Jermaine Greer, of course, was acting and writing. And then we had people like Bob Ellis and Laurie Oakes. And my contemporaries were uh, people like Ken Haller, Richard Werrett, uh, Bruce Beresford. It was quite a interesting ar- array of talent, both writing, acting, directing, designing. Of course, Robert Hughes was still designing sets and costumes for us as well. So it was a, a pretty fancy mix and uh, all highly competitive, huge egos all bumping into each other, but with a spirit of goodwill, uh, competitive, but in a very healthy sense. We're all egging each other on to be better at what we did. So I was eternally grateful for being in that particular clutch of people. Of course, Les Murray, another one, he was uh, writing wonderful poetry even then. A uh, fascinating group of people, and we almost all pretty practically lived on campus. We rarely went home. We, we would uh, go to lectures during the day sometimes, but spend most of our time in, in the Union or Manning House drinking coffee and arguing and talking and then rehearsing and performing at night. So life was entirely on the campus, and that's one thing I'm very uh, sad and distressed about, the near future of university life in uh, in Australia, I think we're going to lose a lot, a lot of that campus life. And one of the re- main reasons for going to university is to be on campus and mingle and rub shoulders with uh, fellow aspirants and see what emerges from that mix. And the more stuff we have on, online and off campus, I think we're going to miss out on a lot. Yeah, to rub shoulders and grow. And, and it's the chance encounters that are, are less uh, not offering these young, interesting people. Um, You don't need to speak for um, all those very illustrious Australians, but you could speak for yourself (laughs) and your motivations for leaving um, and then going to work with the Royal Shakespeare Company, because you've probably just given them that there were few opportunities actually for you to practice your craft here in Australia at the level above, the very fine level that you were obviously achieving at Sydney University at that stage. So I'd, I'd be interested in your experiences, your motivation and your experiences um, at the Royal Shakespeare Company, some of the people that you worked with back then and some of the productions. And and then also we'll get on, of course, to Bell Shakespeare. But um, how much was sown in those years, those five years that you were at the company? Well, I've always counted myself very lucky with my timing. Maybe it's being born with, with a round figure at the end of my uh, the date of my birth and I count my years in decades. So I've always thought I was very very lucky in my timing. And that proved so at university because uh, the year I graduated, another theatre company was established by the Elizabethan Theatre Trust, and that was called the Old Tote Theatre Company. And it was called that because it was built on the site uh, or right next door to Randwick Racecourse. And the Old Tote Lysator building, which then became the headquarters for NIDA. So this uh, company was set up working in a, what basically is an old tin shed, now called the Fig Tree Theatre. But that's where the old tote started its productions. And the NIDA students were just across the courtyard and they participated in these productions as extras and understudies. And so I was very fortunate that the year I graduated, I was taken into that company. And that's where I met my wife, Anna Volska, who was a recent NIDA graduate. And uh, so we were in the first couple of plays together and then I was asked to play Hamlet the third show in the in the season. And the following year, my wife and I were both in Henry V, the Adelaide Festival, playing in a circus tent. And so by the age of 23, I'd done Hamlet and Henry V, and I thought, my gosh, I've peaked too early. There's nowhere to go. <laughs> and uh, apart from the old tote, 
There was nothing else, frankly. So again, I was lucky in my timing. Uh, it was right then that the British Council approached me and said they had some money left over. They had to spend by the end of the year. Uh, would I like to go to England on a scholarship? So uh, I pounced on that and took off to the Bristol Old Vic School. Anna followed me shortly afterwards. And after six months there, uh, they sent me to audition for the Royal Shakespeare Company. And I joined the company at uh, the end of 64. And we spent the next five years living in Stratford and London and working with the company. I once watched a, a beautiful uh, set of interviews and documents about you where you said I was overwhelmed by Shakespeare's language from an early age. But I was just wondering what kind of child in 1950s, 60s Australia could actually say that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure why. My mother was uh, quite a successful uh, elocutionist and uh, is one of those things that young ladies did when she was uh, in her early teens or early married life. Young ladies had to learn elocution and the piano or violin. And uh, so her whole family were uh, you know, into that kind of um, parlour entertainment. And uh, I used to be taken along to a Stedford's and occasionally even to compete, which I, I hated. But I was very struck by the way she could uh, recite and elocute uh, you know, and present poems and stories. So maybe that uh, warmed me up for when I first started to hear Shakespeare on radio. And then at school, I was very fortunate in having, a, well, two wonderful English teachers. And the first of them didn't actually have us read the plays. He acted the plays for us in the classroom. He played all the parts and described the sets and costumes and pratfalls and the lighting and the scenery. He brought the whole thing to life. So for me, Shakespeare was never a chore. It was entertainment. And uh, I was amazed how closely it resembled the kind of roughhouse pantomime theatre that I'd seen. Some of the, the comic scenes in Shakespeare, the extravagance of the language, the uh, you know, the excitement of all the action uh, swept me along. So I was ripe for uh, Laurence Olivier's movies at an early age, the Henry V, Richard III, Hamlet, uh, which totally confirmed me in my determination to be an actor from the age of 15. That was all I wanted to do. How did it change the experience over there, but also, I suppose, immersing yourself in those amazing films with Olivia? How did it change your sense of pace and cadence, if you like, or didn't it? Did you actually find that you end up at the RSC and the English uh, welcome you with open arms rather than with a sort of patronising air about them? Oh, one had to fit in. You had to sort of sound like them. <laughs> I think Australians were very used to having two voices. Australian actors had one voice for the stage and one for the pub, and you didn't ever get them confused <laughs> uh, or else you'd be in trouble. So one had to try and fit into what... But by that time, of course, I'm talking about the mid-60s, the um, sort of impeccable, if you like, Mayfair accent of Olivia and Gilgood and that generation was giving way to a rougher uh, and more varied kind of diction. People like um, Richard Harris and Albert Finney and, uh, you know, uh, Peter O'Toole brought a different kind of, of diction uh, into the theatre. And they were no longer looking for the what you might call the pure... English sound of the earlier generation. So it wasn't that hard to fit in. And that was where I really learned acting, I think. I didn't learn much at drama school. Uh, you only learn by experience and watching people who are better than you are. So I would stand in the wings every night uh, and watch Paul Schofield, especially, who became my very favourite actor while I was there. But people like Ian Holm and Ian Richardson, um, Glenda Jackson, oh, Patrick Stewart, uh, it was a, a good generation of, of actors. 
And just by being in the rehearsal room every day and watching them and hearing them rehearse and then watching them at night from the wings, that was where I really learned what acting was all about. We're going to get on to Bell uh, in a moment, Bell Shakespeare. But I just wonder if, if you can see a real... I don't know, linear line, if you like, for all these actors that you just named and, and the parts and the work they were doing then when you were working with them in the RSC days and then what they went on to do because some of them went on to do somewhat surprising things. Yes, I suppose someone like Patrick Stewart, for instance, uh, became famous for, as Mr. Star Wars. Ian Holm uh, did lots of um, movies, but he was never kind of a major star in, in cinema. Nor was Paul Schofield, even though he was such a great actor, he was he remained very much a, a theatre actor. He did some great movie roles, of course, including uh, Thomas More in Man for All Seasons. But I'd say most of that generation were theatre people, and they'd grown up in the theatre, and they, they stuck to it. There were others like Judy Dench, for instance, who was very much a theatre person until she uh, did cabaret and then became known as a, a musical performer and then went into, into movies. So little breaks came a bit later in life for people like her and Maggie Smith. But others like Ian Richardson, for instance, uh, he did a wonderful television series, uh, House of Cards. Superb. From which he became a household name. Yeah. Yes, he was wonderful. But all their training and most of their careers were spent in the theatre. I think cinema wasn't quite ready then for that sort of actor. They were still looking at the, the John Wayne and uh, that generation of uh, movie stars. We'll take a little pause here for a, a word from our sponsor. Music Aviva would like to say thanks for the support and ongoing partnership of West Farmers Arts. West Farmers Arts understand the vital contribution that the arts make to the communities in which we live and work, bringing people and art together. I'm here with John Bell, who lent his name to the company uh, he founded in 1990. I'd love you to talk a little bit about uh, the motivation behind that, John, and what you were doing just in that period in the, in the few years leading up to it. Well, I spent 14 years as one of the directors of the Nimrod, and after 14 years I was pretty clapped out, frankly. We'd, uh, we'd made the big move from the stables to Belfour Street, and uh, we were having to find at least six new plays a year, etc., and keep raising money and uh, trying to fund the operation. And after 14 years, I thought, I've had enough now. I'm going to take a break and do something else. And so I, I had it on the theatre to uh, Richard Cotterer. Then that, in that next four or five years, I freelanced. I did a little bit of stuff in movies, very small stuff. I didn't really get into movies. A few other stage productions, uh, a musical, would you believe, called Big River, uh, which was fun to do. And then an old friend from the Nimrod days, Tony Gilbert, whom I had known since university, said he had some money put aside. He'd like to see funding something to do with Shakespeare because there was not enough Shakespeare happening. How could he use the money? I found a scholarship or a, some sort of foundation. I said, no, you really should start a theatre company. And he said, well, there you are. There's the money. Get cracking. It wasn't enough, of course, to set up a company, but it was enough to go to the Elizabethan Theatre Trust and say, here's some seeding money. Can you help me get this thing off the ground? And so they gave me an office and a telephone and a, a secretary, and we set about raising enough money to launch the company in 1991. We, I think we got about three quarters of a million dollars we managed to raise by knocking on boardroom doors and having lunches. Again, it wasn't enough to get the company uh, <laughs> on a permanent footing, but it was enough to launch the, launch the company, get it moving, and then set about serious um, funding. 
I'm interested also, I know you have a deep and profound love of music, and I'd love you to talk about it in the context of how you've approached the issue of music in Shakespeare productions at, at different stages of your career. It's sometimes my feeling that Shakespeare obviously used lots of contemporary song in his productions and, to a lesser extent, instrumental music, and he played on the associations of Elizabethan instruments, um, the oboe to presage disaster, lute and viols as a soothing spirit. And there's that wonderful line from Much Ado, um, um, is it not strange that sheep's guts should hail souls out of men's bodies, uh, which I just think <laughs> is the most profound and wonderful way of describing the impact of music. But um, it can end up now, if you use contemporaneous music in Shakespeare productions, uh, it can sound a little bit Blackadderish. So I'm just interested how <laughs> you've approached it. Uh, I don't think I've ever actually used contemporary Elizabethan music. It can work. I mean, there was a lovely production of Twelfth Night that John Barton did with Julie Dench and Donald Sindon that had a very Elizabethan, Jacobean feel about it. And Guy Wolfenden, who was the uh, resident composer for the RSC the whole time I was there and some years afterwards, had a very keen ear for pastiche, that it was Elizabethan-like, but not the real thing. It had enough of a contemporary spin to it to sound both Elizabethan and familiar to the modern ear. But uh, that's not used much anymore. I think most productions these days, probably anywhere in the world, would tend to go for contemporary music. And that can be um, a bit disastrous, depending on the taste of the director and the composer, or it can be very uh, enlightening and uh, really liven things up. I think it always depends on the play and what kind of production you're doing and who you're doing it for. I've been lucky to have people like Nigel Westlake compose for me, for instance, and really very, very good composers who understand the drama, understand the mood you're after. Alan John has been another one who's written a lot of music for me. And uh, he'll often say, well, who do you want it to sound like? You know, And I might say Shostakovich or uh, you know, Scott Joplin or whoever seems appropriate to the, the mood of the play, and then he'll write accordingly. But I think music to Shakespeare was very, very important as a healing power. Uh, King Lear is brought back to life through music, so is Pericles. And Shakespeare's love of music is, I think, manifest. Um, the man that has not music in his soul is fit for plots. And uh, I can't think of the exact line now, but uh, let, no, let no such man be trusted. So uh, he had a great love of music and employed it not just for processions and coronations and parades and battles, but to set the mood of the play. You can tell from the word music, the, the lyricism of the verse, what sort of play we're in. And each play has its own voice, its own language, and the music is often very much in tune with that text. So speaking of let no such man be trusted, Vaughan Williams, of course, did a very beautiful setting of it, or to my ears, a very beautiful setting of, of that text and made it very dramatic at precisely that moment. I wonder how you respond to the way that composers over the centuries have set Shakespeare's words and whether you think that the rhythm of their settings um, matches your the rhythm of your perception of the text. I'm trying to think particularly of um, composers who've used the, the lyrics of the, the verse. Let's do something very main stage, which is adaptations, for instance, of Falstaff by Verdi, um, by Macbeth, mm. Britain doing A Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, I just wonder if if you 
have a very open-minded response to that or, or find that actually you tend to think, oh my goodness, that's made a bit of a travesty of, of these astonishing words. Oh, I, I don't think so. I think Shakespeare is very wide open to many different ways of, of uh, interpretation. Britain, for instance, I don't like all of the Britain Midsummer Night's Dream. I don't think the comedy stuff works at all. It's pretty heavy-handed, I think. But the lyricism for Oberon and Eternia and the fairies is, is wonderful. And it doesn't actually uh, necessarily employ iambic pentameter or match the way Shakespeare would have uh, heard it. But it's got its own magic, its own its own power, and he just uh, you know uses the text to do that. Verdi's Falstaff, although of course we only hear it in Italian at its best, is wonderful. I think it's the best comic mm. opera ever. Uh, well, uh, we better be careful with Mozart here when I say that. But it really is. <laughs> Full of full of comedy and robustness, I think, which I don't really associate with Verdi being a great comic writer, but Falstaff is a comic masterpiece. The other, I think, most successful composer for my generation was um, William Walton, and his music for the Olivia movies uh, was part of the success of those movies. He had again a very good ear for pastiche and a sort of an Elizabethan sound, without actually sort of um, using the rules of composing for Elizabethan music, but it feels Elizabethan in spirit. I think he had a great success with uh, all his scores. Yes, he did. His relationship with Britain was strained um, at best. <laughs> uh, Walton being jealous of Britain's success, and Britain, I'm not sure, was jealous of much. I think but Britain was admiring of Walton as a young man and then less so as they both aged. But the you're absolutely right about both Falstaff, I think, you know, as an astonishing adaptation and as a virile, amazing piece of music written by an 80-year-old, but also the Britain in the fairy world. That's the world that actually really caught his eye and, and captured his imagination. So it's what really brought out the best in him at that moment. In the same show where I saw you talk about loving Shakespeare's words from such a young age, you gave that beautiful speech from The Merchant of Venice, if you prick us, do, not, do we not bleed, etc. And it made me think just about memory and memory in actors and the parallels between that and musicians and the sheer amount that you have to absorb over such a long time and how long it stays with you. Um, do you have thoughts about that? Well, I think um, it's an absolute necessity for actors. And, of course, one thing we are all terrified is of forgetting our lines. And as you get older, it becomes more of an anxiety. But even from early on, it's always the thing you, you most dread. And I've had it twice on stage in my life, I think, when the whole world just goes blank and you don't know how much time is passing, but it feels like an eternity. But uh, it was a prerequisite for actors. And I think Shakespeare's actors particularly could carry around, you know, a dozen plays in their heads at any one time because they might be called upon to perform uh, Richard II tomorrow or we're going to do Hamlet on Thursday. There was no sort of fixed repertoire. It was whatever was called for by a particular sponsor or, um, you know, uh, aristocrat, and so they had to carry all these plays around in their heads. And of course, from an early age, they learned scads and scads of, uh, of Greek and uh, Roman classics and the Bible. Uh, people's memories were prodigious because they had no Google, and a lot of them couldn't read. So you had to memorize an enormous amount of stuff. In fact, the whole question of literacy is, is interesting. People say, oh, they couldn't read in those days, but of course, Look at Midsummer Night's Dream. All those artisans can read. Quinn says, go and study your parts. Here are your roles. Go and learn them. So they could all read. So I think 
we should give a bit more credence to the fact that most people could read reasonably well. Uh, perhaps men had more education than women. Women learned the bare necessities uh, out of, of reading and writing, and was mostly um, they learned about housewifery. I think Shakespeare's father could read but not write. So there was a kind of you know, semi-literate population that a lot of people could read. Nevertheless, as I say, their memories needed to be prodigious, and they were. Musicians totally fascinate me. I think it's extraordinary when I uh, watch them like Simon Tedeschi, with whom I work quite a lot, uh, memorize whole, you know, uh, well, for a start, um, Rhapsody in Blue, he just plays off by, you know, like he played it every day. But other pianists particularly, I can just sit down and roll off, you know, an extraordinary amount of, uh, of music without a score. And I don't know how they do it. It's, it's Well, I do know a bit because I watch Simon when we're having afternoon tea and his fingers are rattling on the table the whole time. He's practicing in the back of his head. He's practicing the piano without realizing he's doing it. So there's something to do with muscle memory and uh, that's the habit of learning and imbibing stuff. So it's always there at your beck and call. And of course, I always found Shakespeare easy to read because it's so memorable. It's harder to learn a TV script because it's pretty ordinary. But when you get poetry and imagery and uh, extraordinary cadences and rhythm and meter, as you get in uh, in verse and in Shakespeare especially, it makes learning a lot easier and much more pleasurable and far easier to retain. You want to remember it, whereas a lot of scripts just want to throw away as soon as you've finished the job, but not with a great play, whether it's Shakespeare or any other great writer. Uh, Somehow those words get embedded in your memory and you want to keep them there in a little private library of your own. Is there a favorite line, speech or sentence uh, in your own <laughs> private library with which we could end this beautiful conversation? <laughs> I think there are so many, but one that always struck me that I uh, always found it quite moving to say at the end of The Tempest, I've done Prospero three times you know, in various productions and at the end of it, I had this long battle with Caliban all through the play, trying to subdue and control Caliban. But at the end, he says, this thing of darkness, I acknowledge mine. And I've always found that very moving, that he's forgiving and accepting Caliban, but also acknowledging the darkness in himself that he has projected onto Caliban. And I guess we all have to acknowledge the darkness in ourselves if we're going to be whole. John Bell, thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. That was a great pleasure. Thank you for listening. You can find show notes for the episode on our website, musicaviva.com.au forward slash podcast. To learn more about our work and upcoming concerts, find us on Facebook by searching Music Aviva Australia and on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Music Aviva AU. Thanks again and see you next time.